Welcome to the XYZ Experiment podcast. Today we're doing a very special podcast to recognise World Diabetes Day. In today's podcast, you'll have myself, Fiona, who you've heard before, and Dash, and introducing my sister, Claire. We're all type 1 diabetics and we're going to talk about our experiences of that. So we hope you enjoy. So Monday, the 14th of November in 2022 is World Diabetes Day. And um, it is a day really to raise awareness about diabetes. And um, three of us are chatting today and you'll hear us, but Fiona and myself, and we've got a special guest chatting today um, about our experience of living with diabetes. And I guess just to flag, we are all living with type 1 diabetes and type 1 diabetes is an autoimmune disease, um, which basically means our body has attacked our pancreas, which is a organ in your body that needs to you need it because it produces insulin which is very important for survival Um, the other main type of diabetes that you can get is type 2 diabetes which is more a lifestyle related um, chronic health condition Um, and there's a lot of conversation around whether or not they're actually even the two same diseases because they're very very different in terms of causes and um, management and all of those types of things so we're going to talk from the perspective of being type 1 or having a type 1 diabetes diagnosis because the rates are going up as we discussed earlier and the interesting thing about all three of us and Claire is actually my sister is that we all got diagnosed as adults yeah which that makes it for a very difficult diagnosis because the doctors aren't looking for that first of all when you're unwell Um, and then most people's expectation is it's when you're a child you know and and I think people just have such a lack of understanding about type 1 as an adult because I often get asked like oh was it your diet or things like that not understanding it was actually an autoimmune aspect to it so so I think it's a really interesting conversation to have and just you know the researcher in me just to put out other stats um, in terms of um, type 1 diagnoses it is a rare disease and it's considered a rare disease but as Fiona said the numbers are increasing but it used to be called juvenile diabetes because there was a big emphasis on the child childhood diagnosis component, but 50% of people who are diagnosed with type 1 diabetes are aged over 20. So it's not actually that there are more children being diagnosed. It's actually probably equal across the age groups. It's just that there has been much more awareness and recognition of children being diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. Mm. So I think um, where we should start is talk about our diagnosis and, and how we were diagnosed. Um, I think it's a really interesting aspect with Claire and I both being sisters um, about uh, because I was diagnosed first mm-hmm. and then the difficulty that Claire encountered with her diagnosis when she really shouldn't have had that sort of difficulty. So I'll go first because then that will lead into Claire's story. Yeah. Um, so I was uh, in my early 30s and a very, very busy person. So I, ha- I owned a business. Um, I uh, did a lot of exercise at the time. I was doing a lot of mentoring programs and that for the city of Geraldton and things like that. And I just started to get sick and I'd get all these weird little sicknesses. And uh, every time I'd go to the doctor, the doctor would say to me, oh, you just do too much. You, you do too much. And it was absolutely true. I did do a lot. 
and uh, saying it was stress it was stress related and that's why I was getting these little infections and it was infections like in my face or I'd be my family always used to have this joke about she's always either tired or hungry um, <laughs> and that yeah see Claire's <laughs> laughing because she knows because they they always used to go oh you're either tired or hungry um, but little did we know I, I it was the type one diabetes and I probably was like that for close to at least a year. And I was visiting my family in Perth because I lived in the country at that stage and I had this really big infection in my face and my mother was saying, you need to go have that looked at. So I went to the local GP and uh, he said, oh, let's do some blood tests. So we did some blood tests and it comes back and um, he's talking through going, there's nothing wrong with you. All the blood tests are coming back normal. And then he just says, as a side note, oh, your blood sugars were a bit high. And I said to him, well, there shouldn't have been because I hadn't eaten for 14 hours before I had the test. And he was like, what? And because it was something like 15. And um, yeah. so he goes, oh, let's send you for some more tests, which we did. And, um, and then those tests showed that I had diabetes, but they thought it was type 2. Yeah. Even though I was the skinniest I'd ever been in my life, I'd lost something like 10 kilos in a matter of months. Um, uh, so for a week, I took metformin. And then I was back up in Geraldton and I was actually the dentist on call that weekend and I was treating a patient in the hospital and I collapsed in the hospital with a blood sugar that was over 40. So um, my diagnosis came in the major regional hospital up there and they put a, a line in me and I felt much better after a few hours and then I went back to looking after my patients, which is just insane when I say it now. Um, and that's, that, that was my, it was insane. And that's my diagnosis. How about you, Claire? How were you diagnosed? Mm. Well, um, there's some parallels in your story and mine. Um, what you were saying about like misdiagnosis really rings true for me because I had been sick for a couple of months and I'd gone to see three doctors, I think it was, and I was working full time. I was studying part time and all three doctors said, you are stressed. You yeah. have so much anxiety. You have to take some time off work and you've just got to relax. Like I just heard that from all of them. And I think it's really easy to be misdiagnosed, particularly as an adult, because a lot of the symptoms of diabetes are symptomatic of a lot of different things. Yeah. Um, like the fatigue, the weight loss, all of it can be a lot of different things. Um, so I went with that for a while and then one day I woke up and I was like a mess. Like it was like I had done 12 hours of cardio and then had a massive bender and I had the flu and I had food poisoning and it had all coalesced oh, into like this horrible gift from hell. And my husband had gone to work that day and I rang around a bunch of doctors to try and get an appointment really urgently. And coincidentally, I got an appointment with a doctor who was in the same building where my husband worked. Um, but to get there, I had to take a train. And so the train was a 10 minute walk from my house, but I felt so physically wrecked that I allowed myself about an hour to make the journey to the train. And I needed the whole hour oh my um, God. because I would walk a few steps and then I would be completely out of breath and I'd have to stop for a while and then walk a couple of steps and it would just go on and on and on. And then I got to the train station and like, this was one of the scariest moments of my entire life. I remember looking at this set of stairs that I would have to walk up to get to the platform. And I thought, not only can I physically not climb these stairs, 
actually don't remember how to climb stairs. Mm. Like I, I was just having like this, I was in a fugue state. I don't know how else to describe it. And there was no one else around and there was no elevator. And I was like, I'm going to have to figure this out. And I literally like on my hands and knees crawled up these stairs just to get to this train platform. And then I got on the train and on the way to the doctor, I started Googling my symptoms because I was like, surely this isn't just stress. And as I was Googling them, diabetes popped up and it was the first time I had ever considered that as a possibility for me. And I had every single symptom, like every single one. So I was like, this is excellent. Like I was excited about it. Cause I was like, finally I have something I can raise to a doctor and maybe I can like start getting on with my life. So I went to the doctor and like Fiona, I was the skinniest I'd ever been when this had happened. I actually lost 15 kilos in two weeks. Like I was that sick. And I said that to the doctor and I said, I'm not sleeping. I'm not eating. I have to pee all the time. I feel nauseous. I'm confused. Like I couldn't climb stairs today. There's something really wrong with me. Do you think I could be a type one? And this man, this doctor actually laughed at me mm. and said, oh, you've already been to Dr. Google, have you? Oh, that's so helpful. And was just so condescending, would not give me a glucose test and was just like, you're tired. I can't be the first person to tell you this. Go home and just do less. And he, you had and told him your sister was a tight one, hadn't you? I had. Yeah. I had. Wow, I said, I know yeah. what this looks like. I think it's what's happening <gasps> to me. She told him. Yeah. And at that point, like, normally I can advocate for myself, but I was so sick and so like humiliated by the way that he had treated me i just thought like whatever fine whatever's happening to me i'll go home like who cares so i rang my husband and i said i can't physically get home you have to leave work you have to take me home and he came and met me and he was like you're not okay you have to go to hospital and i said i don't have to go to hospital i have to go to bed like i'm so tired and so he took me home and i went to bed and when i woke up I had a new symptom that there was this like, not pain exactly, but pressure in my chest, like someone was sitting on me and I was really confused. Like I couldn't talk properly. I couldn't think properly. And my husband flipped out and was like, I'm calling you an ambulance right now. So the ambulance came, took me to hospital. And when I was in triage, my husband was the one talking to the nurse because I, I forgot how to talk. Yeah. Like I, I didn't know how to express what was happening. Were you there? And so he Fiona was telling well? them my no, symptoms. No, I was in Perth. Okay. He was telling them that I had a sister who was a type one and the nurse said, well, let's test her. So she did a glucose test on me, which um, is when they prick your finger for mm. a small amount of blood that they test with a glucometer to say how much sugar is in your blood. And when she tested me, I was at 45, I think it was. Yeah. Um, and that is what started a two and a half week stay in hospital right after I was diagnosed with diabetic ketoacidosis, mm. which is when your body is producing ketones, which can do so many harmful things so quickly. They can shut down your organs. They can kill you. They can do irreparable damage. And I was having a heart attack at the mm. same time from being in DKA. Yeah, major DKA. Yeah. I flew and I flew in the next day and Claire just had lines to her heart all through. Yeah. Like it was shocking. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and like I remember so little about being in hospital. I remember having all the tubes in me. I remember them at one point having to get 
a razor blade to cut my arm open because they couldn't get enough veins. Like I was so dehydrated and ill. And I remember a doctor talking to mum saying either you or my husband had to sign a waiver to say if I didn't improve in the time that they needed me to improve, they were going to stick a line down my neck. Um, and I don't remember why, but I do remember that, yeah, they had to sign this waiver to say that they could do it. And mum later said to me that I looked like a corpse in the bed. And the nurses were saying to my husband, like, if she hadn't come in this night, she would have died. Like it was that yeah. significant. Um, so that's how I got diagnosed and that's the problem with type 1 it's so hard to diagnose I think it's better now mm. how, how many years have you been a type 1 now Claire 11 11 okay. I've been 20 this year it was a uh, 21 sorry for me this year so I'm uh, I got diagnosed in 2018 mm -hmm. um, and do you want me to tell yeah, my yeah, diagnosis tell story, story first yeah. okay so but God Claire hideous your story is hideous. Um, She's lucky to be alive. Like I had goosebumps listening to you um, just then, God. So um, as our listeners may have picked up in earlier episodes, I have multiple sclerosis and I was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis when I was 23. And um, as part of having multiple sclerosis, I've been on some pretty full-on drugs. Like they're, they're similar to chemo drugs, um, sometimes just at a lower dosage. Um, but they really do hideous things to your immune system. And, be, and so one of the drugs that I was on meant that I had to do four years of monthly blood tests after my last dose of that drug just to track things. And um, I was coming up towards the end, I think, of that period, but I, I was looking at these blood tests and kind of saying, I feel like I have a UTI or I feel like there's something off because, you know, I was going to the bathroom a lot. Um, I had lost a lot of weight. So I'd, I, similar to you guys, had lost 10 kilos in about two months. Was incredibly fatigued, but that's also an MS symptom. So it was hard to unpack that one. And we were moving house as well. So there was heaps happening. Like we were moving house. Um, we had a new apartment being built there was lots of stress happening. And so I was watching these blood tests, but they weren't showing anything. So I went to the GP and no, actually backtrack. Um, because our apartment wasn't ready, we ended up staying with my parents for six weeks. And I was eating an extraordinarily amount of food, like extraordinary. And I just felt like I was constantly needing food in my system. And then over one weekend, I developed this extreme thirst. I'd never experienced that before. So I literally was holding water in my mouth because the thirst was so bad. As soon as I didn't have water in my mouth, I felt like yeah. I was, it was just such an odd feeling. And the weight loss, and I don't know if it was the same for you, it was so rapid. It felt painful. Like my body mm -hmm. felt like it had dropped weight too fast and it was painful. Yeah kind of skeletal thing and I look back on photos and I looked skeletal I wasn't like the skinniest person ever but it's that type of weight loss which is like you're sick as opposed to Strange healthy your face yeah. and everything yeah 100% so I work in um, a public health school um, at a university a lot of people working in diabetes there right mm. and I was like hmm kind of looking at some of the stuff they were doing and then I googled my symptoms like Claire 
And I was like, this is type 1. This is 100% type 1. I know I've already got one autoimmune condition with MS. Um, and so I went to the GP, who I'd been seeing for about 18 months. So it wasn't an, a GP that was new to me. And I said, I have type 1 diabetes. And he's like, mm, are you sure? Because he looked me up and down. I'm Sri Lankan. I'm not the skinniest, but I'd lost a lot of weight. And um, he was like, you have type 2. Anyway, he does a blood test, finger prick, and it comes back at 32.8. That's high. It's high. I didn't appreciate at the time how high it was. And so he said, yep, you definitely have type 2. You have diabetes, he says in a sing-along voice. And I was like, how can you tell from that blood test that I have type 2 and not type 1? And he's like, he just looks me up and down. He's like, you've got type 2. So he writes down um, a diet plan for me and he gives me a script for metformin and sends me home. But like you, Claire, I at that point was feeling so unwell and I was meant to catch the train home to mum and dad's. But I was so dizzy that I was like, I'm just going to get an Uber. So I'm in the Uber and I'm Googling um, blood sugar level 32.8. And it says, at 33, you are at risk of going into a diabetic coma. Yeah. And I was like, what the hell? And so then I ring my two friends who are GPs. They're married to each other. And, you know, they just start having a chat to me. And then I say, oh, I'm, I'm ringing. And I, again, was quite confused. I said, I'm ringing. I've come back from the GP and my blood sugar is 32.8. And they were like, what? Anyway, they said, you've got to go to the emergency department now. You've got to go to the emergency department now. Anyway, I was on my way home, went to mum and dad's, um, waited for Scott to get home. And I said, we have to go to the emergency department. And Scott was like, oh, maybe we'll go tomorrow because... He was kind of thinking, oh, emergency departments are going to be really busy. It's an evening. It's going to be really busy. And um, our friends were like, no, you can't risk it. You may not wake up. And so we go to a public emergency department first. The queue to the emergency was out the door. And I just said to Scott, I said, I really don't feel okay right now. And he was like, okay, okay. And so we went to a private emergency department. There was no one there. Waltz straight in. They admitted me straight away. And I remember the emergency department consultant doctor did a ketone test um, or she ran some bloods and she was in the corridor and gets the results back and I heard her swear. So she said, fuck. But then she comes in just very calm and she says to me, you know, you have type 1 diabetes. Um, and she knew that already just from my blood sugar test. And she said, but, you know, it's really busy here and we really think you should get some rest. You're really tired. We're just going to get you a bed in ICU because we think you're going to be more comfortable <laughs> <ICU>. there. <laughs> and they have a bed ready for you. And I was like, okay. And she's like, you know, yeah, it's just, it's just so that there's some peace and quiet for you. Like she was really trying to keep yeah. me calm. Yeah. So they wheel me into ICU and then I get hooked up to two drips with potassium running through yeah. me and like heart rate monitors and nurse sitting there like the whole time, like staring at me. I'm like, what the hell is going on? And Scott took photos of me at the time and I was looking back. I was like, God, I was unwell anyway. So I spent a couple of days in ICU and then back on the ward and then the journey of like going, how the hell do I manage this going forward? Mm. But... Um, I was so angry at that GP and he rang me <laughs> a week later to be like, oh, actually, some of your other blood tests have come back and you actually have type 1. I said, yeah, I told you that. And I actually have just been discharged from hospital after being in ICU with DKA. And he's like, oh, God, I'm... Well, he didn't say sorry. And he's, I said, 
you misdiagnosed me and he mm. wouldn't admit it. Of course not. He wouldn't yeah. admit it. But I was so angry because if I hadn't had friends who were medical who really pushed for me to go to emergency, I could have... You might have been like Claire. I could have been like Claire. Mm. Yeah. And so... Um, passive aggressively or very aggressively I printed off the GP training for diabetes and I put it in the mail and sent it to him and I said I think you would benefit from attending this (laughs) (laughs) I feel like yours and Claire's story like I I didn't I mean even though my blood sugar was over 40 I didn't get to that end point like you guys like I just it's just making me think about my journey when I was working in the hospital and collapsed, they just yeah. put me in a chair, put me with a, um, some insulin into my arm, like straight into, I had it in the crook of my arm there, and I was reading a book. I actually bent the needle, because back then they weren't the plastic ones, it was oh a God. metal one. Yeah. And I'm reading my book, and they left me there for about four or five hours. And then, um, and then they literally just said, oh, here's some insulin, um, just start injecting yourself, told, told me how often, and that was it. And I was... Just, I wasn't even an inpatient because I was what? just working there. Oh. Yeah, and then I saw I saw some trauma come in and treated that, and then hopped on a plane the next day back to Perth and thought, okay, I better go see someone about this. Wow. It was crazy. It is crazy because it is a life-threatening disease. Yeah, it was just it's just crazy. Just oh. thinking about oh wow, I bet Claire's Claire's was the worst story I'd ever heard. Yeah, at the that, time that that is full on Claire. Yeah, full on. I mean. This, the silver lining to all of this, like I was lucky in a lot of ways that at least when I came out of hospital, I had you, Fiona. Like yeah. Fiona flew to Sydney for me. She taught me how to do a lot of things, like gave me meal plans, which the hospital also did, but it's different when someone who's actually been mm. through it is like, you might feel like this. And when that happens, you should do this. Um, that was really wonderful. And in the years since as well, like we've texted each other when we've had bad days, just saying like, has this we ever understand. happened to you? Has that ever happened to you? What do I do if this happens? And we're quite different type type ones. Totally different. We're really? t- different in our insulin needs and all sorts yeah. of stuff because we often discuss mm. it. Claire's the only other diabetic I knew until I met you. Really? Dash. Yeah. Um, and we're quite different. We often compare stuff that we're doing and, and we, we're different types of type ones and you and I might be different yeah. again. It's a really interesting... You know, we've all got the same disease, but it's it's different for it's each of us. It's very different. And endocrinologists and diabetes educators will tell you theoretically the stuff, but it's someone else who's going through it who's like, try this when you're sleeping and this is how you manage X, Y and Z and these are the best sugar things to have on tap for you and, you know, like all of that kind of stuff. So it was super helpful. So with the, um, the, the type 1 diabetes, I'm just interested to know in how you think it's shaped or changed your life since the diagnosis so like for myself um I haven't been able to have children and I did try I did IVF and things like that and uh and, but the IVF of course is hormone based as is the diabetes mm. and uh and I got to the stage where the specialist took me in and said look your bloods are just going crazy at the moment we have to stop all IVF now like no more IVF for you and then I didn't practice birth control for 15 years and wasn't able to... Well, that's not true. I can actually get pregnant. I've been pregnant a number of times. I can't keep them. 
Wow. So, and I can't get past the 10 week mark. So, um, and that's just the diabetes. And, and I'd have a really high blood sugar and they weren't sure whether it was the high blood sugar causing the miscarriage or whether the miscarriage was causing the high blood sugar. Nobody knows. But, um, you know, that's something that I had to actually go see a psychologist about and go, okay, I haven't been able to have children. Uh, what's my life going to be like now? Like, like, what's life look like? Because I always thought I'd have children in my life. Mm. So that's a big thing, I think, for a few type ones, that that becomes a more difficult journey for you. And the other thing for me is it really changed my perspective on life because the thing about diabetes type 1 is you could be dead. I used to think for me it would be three days. I now learnt it's two days for me because I've had times when I haven't had insulin. And I think I'd be gone in two days if I don't have that medication. Who who has that, that you could be dead in two days, like if you don't have mm. this medicine? You know, like to be living with that all the time, it's, it's an unbelievable mm. thing to have to think about. And so I became very much about really enjoy every single day for everything you can get because you just don't know if this is the last day. And so I know it sounds crazy, but I became a bit more joyful about life. I became a bit more about make every day the best and be really happy. And, 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 and it made me a better person, if that makes sense. It made me enjoy my life a lot more. And it also made me less materialistic and those sort of things didn't weren't important to me. It was connection and experiences. That's what really, really became the focus of my life. Yeah. And I just wonder what, what it was like for you two with the diagnosis, like what that means for you and what your lifestyle then became. What about you, Claire? Um, when I found out that I was a type 1, A, I was relieved because I finally had a diagnosis. But B, because I had already seen you go through it, Fiona, I was like, this actually isn't going to be that bad. Yeah. Like, oh, I had a really different reaction. Yeah. Um, and I was like, actually, this is a really manageable disease. I can still have a big, full, happy life. Um, I live in a country where treatment is not only available, but it's affordable. Like, I was quite sunny about the whole thing. Yeah. Um, and so that's, I, I feel really lucky that that's the way that I felt. But it doesn't mean that it hasn't affected me in other ways. Like because my diagnosis was as traumatic as it was, um, they really impressed on me at the time. Like you have to be well controlled because if you're not, and you're not for an extended period of time, like things are just gonna be taken away from you and you can't imagine like the scope of what that might look like. So take care of yourself. Yeah. So I became quite militant about it. Yeah. Mm. And like, you know, testing my blood sugar all the time, making sure my HbA1c levels were really good, which is the test that they do every three months to see like how your sugar has been tracking. And I've been solid like for a really, really long time. Um, and then after I got married, my husband and I were talking about like, do we want to have children? What's that going to look like? And so I spoke to a lot of doctors about that and they said, to be honest, like you're a really good candidate. You've got good blood sugar control but it's probably gonna be hard because mm. diabetic pregnancies are hard. That's mm. just the nature of it. Um, and you can't get pregnant by accident. Like you have to be intentional. However you approach this, you have to make sure your sugars stay good on top of all the stuff that, you know, most people have to do if they wanna have a healthy pregnancy, like taking the right vitamins, making sure you're eating well, getting the exercise, getting the rest. Like it's hard to get pregnant anyway, even if you're not diabetic. Mm. So. I had in my head, I was like, this may just never happen. Um, and I was lucky that my husband was like, if it happens, wonderful. If it doesn't, it's fine. And 
for a long time, it just didn't. And then when it did, when I found out I was pregnant, it was joyful, but it was also really terrifying yeah. because I understood that it would be hard to keep the baby in the first instance, um, that the birth would be really hard and that the entire process of being pregnant was really hard. And it was, um, by diabetic standards, I had a really easy pregnancy, so easy. Like my blood sugar was perfect. I didn't have any DKA. I didn't have any major episodes of anything. And my endocrinologist was like, you can have a natural birth. Like we don't have to schedule a C-section for you. I'm really happy for you to do this. Um, and I was really happy and I was trying to do all of the right things. And then the only other major episode I've ever had with diabetes beyond when I got diagnosed was when I actually gave birth. Um, and the week before I was due to do that, I just started vomiting uncontrollably all day. Like it was hideous. It was like the worst food poisoning I'd ever had. And the doctors were concerned that maybe I had listeria. Mm. Um, and they were talking to me about like, you could get preeclampsia. There's all kinds of things that could happen. We have to schedule to have an induction. Like you can't naturally go into labor. It's too dangerous. Um, and I was relieved by that. Cause I was like, at least I know when this is going to happen and it's going to be in a controlled environment and everything's going to be okay. Um, except that it wasn't because they didn't pick up at that time that I was going through DKA again. And the day of the induction, I called the hospital and said, I'm going to be late to come and have this. And they said, that's fine. Take your time. And when I got there, they were like, do you have COVID? Like, have you had a test? This is not right. And they put me in this private room, did all these tests and like, oh, you don't have COVID, but you're quite ill, aren't you? And I was like, yeah, yeah, I can't keep anything down. And so they were like, okay, well, we're going to induce you and you'll feel better. So they didn't and check the, your ketones, Claire? They did not check my ketones God. at that point. I'm actually so, even having trouble speaking during this because I think mm, I'm going to cry. Let's see. Labor is horrible. Like most people mm. will tell you that. And an induction is worse because it's forcing your body to go into labor before yeah. it's ready to. So I was going through all of that while vomiting, while having all of these other symptoms. And there was a button on the wall behind my bed that I could press if I was having a medical emergency. And I remember being in so much pain that I just like whacked it. And all these nurses and doctors ran into the room to see what was wrong with me. And I was like, my body is being ripped apart. Like I, I have never felt like this in my life. And they tried to calm me down going, yeah, that's labor. And I was like, it's not, it's not just labor. Something else is happening. So they took me down to the delivery room and they strapped me to um, machines that like monitor your baby's heartbeat. And very similar to what you were saying, Dash, when the doctor walked out of the room and swore, the doctors looked at the heartbeat and just went, oh my God. I just went, you're going to have a C-section. You're going to have it right now. And so I was like, thank God, like this is going to happen. Good. Um, and so they took me into a room and there was like 15 doctors and nurses. And there was one nurse whose entire job was just to hold my hand and calm me down basically. Um, and I kept saying to her, like, when is this going to happen? When is this going to happen? And she said, it's going to happen as soon as your endocrinologist can sign off on it. She's helping another person have a baby, but as soon as she says, it's okay, it's going to happen. And it took, I think an hour, like going through this incredible pain, feeling like I was going to die, being worried about the baby. Finally, the endocrinologist signed off and they could do the C-section. And thankfully, like my baby was totally fine. And in the end of it, I was also okay. But like, it was 
traumatic and it really does something to you psychologically because I was in the ICU the day that my baby was born yeah. and I couldn't meet him for a day and just thinking like is he all right like I don't know what's going on and my husband going back and forth from my room to the NICU to my room to the NICU and just reassuring me that everything was okay but because I'd already been through something so traumatic like I couldn't mentally receive it so yeah it really does change your mindset and when things like that happen it it just really crystallizes for you how quickly things can get really bad oh my god Claire oh my god and like side note I I remember you going through that because we were meant to catch up with Fiona on the uh -huh. zoom and Fiona couldn't because obviously she was very distressed and worried about what you were going through. And I, I just remember thinking, oh, my God, like, I can't imagine what's happening in that hospital. And I just I'm so sorry that happened to you that they didn't check. Like, I just find that quite astounding. I'm just um, I'm just so happy she's OK now and has the most beautiful child. Like, yeah. just everything's good now. So but at the time it was very distressing. Cause Claire, did you lose consciousness during that? No, Okay. but like, and I try not to over dramatize because of course labor's not fun, but this was on Next another level. Level. Mm. Next level. It was, I felt like I was existing outside of my body. And I remember the nurse who was holding my hand, like trying to help me through contractions just said to me, I don't know how you're doing this, but it's so good that you're doing it. I don't know how you're doing this, but it's so good that you're doing it. I'm like, are you meant to say that to me? Like, that's actually quite distressing. No, because it was out of anything she'd seen before. That's the it thing. Was, it was nuts. And so, like, in my head, I was just thinking like, I've tried so hard for nine months to make this good. Like, please don't take my baby from me now. Yeah. Like, and that was a real possibility, which thankfully it didn't happen. But like, even thinking about it is, traumatizing mm. to me now and then how do you go back to have another one you, you know what i mean like these things well i was gonna ask that ones. like claire you don't have to answer this if you don't want to but has it changed your mind or impacted your decision for having other kids um yes and no like what I would say is if I ever did get pregnant again, I would opt for the C-section yeah. as the first option. Yeah. Like I would never go through anything like yeah. this again. Okay. Um, it's changed how I would interact with my endocrinologist. It's changed what I would think about in pregnancy as being normal versus not normal. Yeah. Um, but yeah, whether I would go through it again, look, it, it might sound crazy, but I probably would. Yeah. I feel like I would be better equipped the second time around. Yeah. Um, I would have more information to advocate for myself. But yeah. yeah, like it's the same thing as when I got diagnosed. Like you're going through this massive physical thing and this really emotional thing. And at the time that it's happening, like you can't think. Mm. It's just so wrapped up in all of it. And it's just this big confluence of awful things that you just like, I, I don't know where to go from here. And you have to put a massive amount of trust in your doctors and trust that they know what to look for and trust that they're going to do all the right things. And I mean, luckily in my case, if you can call it luck, um, is I have never had an episode in between like being diagnosed mm. and giving birth. Like I've been steady. Otherwise, mm. 
But, but like the two that I've had are bad. That's the thing about type one though, is that you can crash so fast. You just mm. yeah. everything can be fine and then all of a sudden you're just not. you're not. Yeah. You're just not. And trying to explain that to people, it's a really weird thing. And and you're always trying I don't know, it's 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 not only a hidden condition. But I don't know about you two, but it's almost like I'm trying to hide it as well. Everything's fine. I'm I'm yeah. doing okay. But sometimes, like what Claire was saying, you can't even say your name. Yeah. <laughs> you can't even mm. say your name. Like it's crazy. It's just a crazy thing to explain to people. So I guess to put it in context, as someone who lives with quite a few chronic health conditions, so I've got multiple sclerosis and endometriosis and type 1 and other other things. But type 1 by far is my hardest to manage on a day-to-day. It's the mental load of it. Um, And I think COVID was an interesting experience because I remember I went to the pharmacist to get um, supplies for my insulin pump and there weren't any. Yeah, that was a scary time. That was a really scary time and just thinking shivers. Like, I I don't know how to give myself insulin without the pump. Like, I'd been off manual injections for a little while. Um, and just being like, oh, God, we're in a pandemic. Are we going to get this? And to be honest, like, I know there's a lot of advocates out there at the moment who are sending supplies to people with type 1 in the Ukraine because I just think, God, in a war, you are so vulnerable um, Mm. to this disease, but it is the worst of my health conditions. And I guess the other thing that really impacts me is all my health conditions interplay with each other. So treatment that I have to sometimes have for MS causes my blood sugars to skyrocket and so there's always you know I I can be I was in this situation soon after I was diagnosed I was diagnosed in the February and because my body had been in so much stress and the other thing they don't tell you when you go through DKA is the bloody hair loss that happened I don't know if that happened to you Claire Um, but for six months like my hair was falling out I was thinking what the heck has happened anyway tells you your body's in stress (laughs) um but because my body was in stress it did bring on a really significant ms relapse and i couldn't walk and i remember being in the hospital and the doctors were like oh my god we've got this newly diagnosed type one who's literally just come out of being in dka how are we going to treat her and it was the first time that i was going oh my god i'm a complicated case now but my endocrinologist was amazing and she was literally, because I see her, I was seeing her privately, so she was texting me and I was like showing her my blood sugar levels constantly and she was correcting because I was just so worried that I'd end up in that DKA space again. And my blood sugars did go really high with the steroids, but we were managing it and, you know, I then got back to being able to walk after day three, I think, of steroids. Um, but it was it's full on. It's really full on. Mm. The other thing that stuck with me that my endocrinologist said very early on and my diabetes educators, they said, you have to be very conscious of dead in bed. And so, you know, potentially giving yourself too much insulin and going low overnight and not waking up. And um, she said that to me. And so I'm now on a continuous glucose monitor because I'm actually not always aware when I'm having a hypo. You don't, you don't I, get the aura? I don't get the aura. I am so sometimes oblivious, particularly if I'm working. I don't pick up on the symptoms of going low. Um, 
but it's been a message that I think has totally freaked my family out. And at the moment, my husband is overseas, so I'm by myself. And my mum is literally texting me every morning to make sure I've woken up. Yeah. Like, she's so stressed about the dead in bed no, situation. I'm glad. I'm glad yeah. to hear that. I'm yeah. really glad. I have a very strong aura. Like, it's unbelievable how strong it is. And and my, my specialist thought I might lose it, but I haven't. And mm. he always says, you're so lucky. You're so lucky. Like, the aura's... Because he said a lot of people don't have that. Yeah. Do you get the aura, Claire? Yeah, I definitely yeah. do. Yeah. Um, it's I get it for going low more than I get it for going high, but yeah. I start to shake yeah. a lot. Really? And I imagine Claire and I have got the same, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But if I'm going high, I just start to feel like sick to my stomach. So the shake's the same for me. I start to sweat very, very badly. It's like I've been in a pool and my tongue becomes really thick, if that makes yeah. sense. I can't get words out properly. And then with the high, I'm going to vomit. I'm gonna, I know when yep. I'm high, I'm going to vomit. So when I go high, I just fall asleep. Wow. Like literally as soon as I get to maybe even 14, so it doesn't even have to be that high in the scheme of things. You're really tired. I will literally fall asleep, yeah. literally fall asleep. And then when I go low, don't get the shakes really, unless I'm really, really low. Yeah. Um, don't get anything, but I sometimes start slurring my words. Yeah. So that's probably my... Yeah, your trigger. Tell. Just to tell. Yeah. yeah. Uh, as a side note, when I became a type 1 diabetic, I had an incident where I was on holiday up in Broome and um, we were taking this um, trip out to look at this pearl farm, which is quite a distance from the city centre. So I wouldn't have access to any of my medications for a number of hours. And I hadn't put my insulin pump in properly. And so we get out to this thing and my blood sugar is really going high, like I'm up near 20 by now. And uh, and I've, I don't know what I'm going to do. Like I just, like I'm still four hours away from getting back into our hotel. And and because, you know, you're not in the right headspace, I don't tell anybody, you know, yeah. I don't tell anybody, but I stop eating. I don't eat anything because I can't afford for the blood sugar because I'm starving and I'm drinking heaps of water just, and I can't enjoy the event at all. I'm like, I've got to get back, I've got to get back, I've got to get back. So we get back to the hotel room and my friend who hadn't come on the um, adventure with me, I just I just ignore her, just walk straight to the fridge. I grab my emergency pen of insulin and I just stab it into my stomach and just pump it in and then literally just collapse onto the bed and, and fall asleep. And afterwards, I thought, this is what drug addiction must be like. Like it was my very first understanding of what a drug addict must go through because the craving for that drug, it, it was it was all that was in my head and I would have stuck that needle anywhere, mm. anywhere to, I would have stuck it in my eye if I had to because my body was screaming for the medication so much. Like, um, and so I, I have a lot of sympathy when I think about drug addiction because, and, and sometimes I'll make a very tasteless joke about, yeah, I'm a drug addict because I, I literally, it's the first time I realised I am, yeah. that I, my body cannot function without the insulin it but no one's function. body can I it's, know I yeah. know but it was I've never I haven't experienced that really since like because yeah. that was the most extreme I ever had but have you have you either of you experienced like that or I've never gone up that high since and I've never been in DKA again since yeah. so um yeah I'm fortunate that way but I think the anxiety about not having access to insulin. So for the first yeah. probably two years of my 
post-diagnosis, I would not leave the house. I, ha I bought a special bag. I would not leave the house without an extra insulin pen, um, backup needles, um, jelly beans, like glucose monitors, ketone monitors. I would carry, like it would just be going to the for a walk with the dog. I would carry that everywhere. I was so paranoid and stressed about it. And now I like leave the house constantly without those things. But I think I've calmed down enough to be like, okay, if I'm not leaving the city, I can easily access things if I need to. Would you go anywhere without jelly beans? I don't go, or a blood blood monitor? Um, I probably wouldn't without a blood monitor, even yeah. though I'm on continuous glucose monitoring or jelly beans. There's been a few times that I've been caught out where I've forgotten. I thought I had them with me yeah, and I haven't. That's a bit scary. Yeah. And that's been a little bit scary, particularly when I'm walking because yeah. I tend to drop quite low. Um, but yeah. How about you, Claire? Um, look, I haven't had an episode quite like that, but I was just reflecting while you were talking about one time I woke up in the middle of the night and I was low and I went to the pantry to like find something to eat really quickly to bring my sugar up and I had a Kit Kat. Yeah. And I remember thinking at the time, like, this is the most delicious thing <laughs> I've ever had in my life. Yes. Like, have you guys experienced that? Yes. <laughs> the food post low is like the best feast ever. It doesn't even matter what you're eating. Yeah. But I've, I've got to the stage where I just have jelly beans next to my bed. I've got yeah, this same. big Tupperware dish of it. And I'll be lying there on my side and just shoving them in and just saying, don't choke on them, just chew them and try not to wake up very much. Yeah. <laughs> like, just, it's crazy when you think about it. Just, yeah, delicious so Kit <laughs> One time one of my friends made me dinner and I thought what she'd given me was carbohydrates and they weren't. Yeah. It was actually oh, radishes. I'd given myself too much, yeah. And so I'd given myself too much and then I was in this body corporate meeting and... I was texting Scott because I was eating jelly beans. It wasn't coming back up. I was like, Scott, like my blood sugar's not coming back up. I'd given myself way too much insulin. Yeah. I was like, you need to bring me like a lemonade or something. Yeah. Anyway, he w he comes down to this meeting with a bottle of maple syrup. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like literally drinking maple syrup out of the container. But Claire, it was the most delicious thing <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> At least mm. we can laugh about it, seriously. <laughs> it's just like... <laughs> but, you know, it is a hidden disease and um, I don't wish it upon anybody. And I like that, you know, the three of us have, have been diagnosed with it, but you're still living your life. You're still, you know, we're still able to live a life and travel and have children and, and enjoy a variety of foods and work and... It's just a little different for us, that's all. Just it's a, a bit more complicated yeah, sometimes. <laughs> yeah, it's a bit more complicated, but but we're doing okay. We're doing okay. If there's one thing that you would like people to know about living with diabetes, what would it be? Mm. Good question. Uh, I, just, I just want them to understand that I might look okay and, and I'm very good at showing that I'm okay but sometimes under the surface I'm really not and mm. if I say to you uh, I'm not having a good day or if I'm unwell I really am yeah I really am if I acknowledge it I really am mm. yeah Claire I mean mine's kind of a different take on that because 
I mean, everybody's diabetes is very personal to them. It's very different to them. But like, as Fiona's saying, like if I'm having a really bad day and I tell you that, that means it's bad. Um, I would say that like, it is a manageable disease. And in that way, we are lucky. Mm. Um, because I remember when I got diagnosed, there was a lot of panic around me. Um, and my friends just going like, oh my God, that's so hideous. And I was like, it's, it's actually not, like it's not ideal. But in the scheme of things, like I can deal with it. There are things that I can do to help manage it. I can still have a really good life. You don't have to worry in this way. Um, and everybody's gotten much better about that. And like, I have friends who, when I go out with them, will like bring jelly beans for me, and which I think is really cute. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's really nice. It's like the way that they show care and that they like actually um, are cognizant of like what could happen to me and they want to make sure that I'm okay. But at the same time, I'm like, it's really, really nice that you do that, but actually I'm, I'm also okay. So, yeah. Yeah. And how about you, Dash? Finish us off. Mm. <laughs> I think my main thing is to understand that diabetes isn't just one disease and mm. type two and type one are very, very different. And I think that I really, particularly after hearing all of our stories as well, want health professionals and um, doctors to really have this on their radar a bit more. Like GPs are the gateway entryway into so many other health services and just to kind of go if in doubt just finger prick yeah. ketone yeah. it's not hard it's really rules easy. it out rules it out really quick if it's not but if it is then you've got the information to then take action yeah. so that's probably my big one Hi, Fiona here. Thanks for taking the time to listen to the XYZ Experiment podcast. And don't forget to leave a rating and review. If you enjoyed our show, tell all your friends and family and subscribe. Follow us on Instagram at the XYZ Experiment for all the latest updates and news. Our original music was composed and performed by Luke Champion. 